Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very happy to have Carl Bontempo on the show, and we'll be talking about his new tome, Americans at the Gate, the United States and Refugees During the Cold War. When I was in high school in Kansas, though so many years ago, there appeared among us uh, what to us were a very odd group of people, and these were um, Vietnamese refugees. They were, in fact, boat people. We didn't know it at the time. We really didn't understand the international context that had brought them to Wichita, uh, but we were certainly aware that they were there. This is actually uh, an old story, as Carl will tell us in the interview. The United States has been interested in helping refugees since World War II. We've had a kind of love-hate relationship with it. Um, it was an integral part of uh, American foreign policy uh, during the Cold War, but there were those who opposed it. Uh, Now it's come to the fore again as we find ourselves um, trying to withdraw from another conflict that will certainly leave a lot of refugees. Uh, So it's a very timely book as well. I enjoyed very much talking with Carl about the United States and refugees during the Cold War, and I think you will as well. Here's the interview. Hi, Carl. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm doing well today. How are you? I'm uh, very well. It's uh, sunny here in Iowa. How is it? You're in New York, yes? I'm in Albany, Albany, yep. Uh, It's uh, actually quite nice today. It's cloudy, but we have peaked into almost 50 degrees, which is great for us. Yeah, it gets above zero here, and we feel that way. (laughs) Oh, that's that's not true. No, but I understand, because we were were in the deep freeze recently, too, but now the brown snow is melting a little bit, and this is a nice thing. Yeah, no, it's very nice here. I I should say it's it's, it's extraordinarily nice here in Iowa right now. I should tell our listeners that we're uh, we're very pleased to have Carl Bontempo on the show today, and we'll be talking about his new book, Americans at the Gate, the United States. States and refugees during the cold, cold ugh, new mouth just got it during the, during the Cold War. I'll edit that out. The, um, the, so, Carl, maybe we could begin by just asking you to uh, say a few words about yourself. That is where you're from, um, how you became interested in history, where you went to school, and how you came to write this book. Great. Um, well, I was uh, born in Washington D.C. and and grew up in the northern Virginia suburbs, and didn't go that far away to go to uh, university. I ended up at Georgetown University, mm-hmm. where uh, with long family connections, my mother uh, was a graduate student there in history. Actually, mm-hmm. uh, managed to to uh, she actually stopped the program. Uh, I think she was halfway through her coursework uh, to, towards the Ph.D. And my dad went to med school there. So oh, we have really? a long wow. history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we were huge Georgetown basketball fans yeah. during the Patrick Ewing era. I so that, it well. <laughs> that sealed the deal. Yeah. Um, so I went to I went to school at Georgetown and, and finished up in the early 90s uh, with a history degree. And um, then I guess I did something a little bit off uh, the normal path. Um, I did two things, actually. The first thing I did was I uh, I worked in uh, a 
foreign policy think tank and then did some consulting in, in foreign policy, mm-hmm. uh, specifically in U.S. African affairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a, a, a fantastic experience. And while I was doing that, I was playing in a punk rock band. And <laughs> yes, you can see it's, it's not the normal trajectory, I think. Uh, so I played in a punk rock, punk rock band and made a bunch of records. Uh-huh. Uh, we Do you want to name, them- name the band? Uh, sure. <laughs> uh, we were called My Life in Rain, uh-huh, okay. uh, and that's like the precipitation. Got it. Um, uh-huh. And uh, and we did that. I did that for about, well, it started when I was in university, and then it, we did that for six or seven years. We put out three three CDs, uh-huh. which are still available out there, and we don't we don't get any royalties for them. Oh, so it's it, you're not gonna nobody's gonna juice the sales. <laughs> um, and I did that for six or seven years. Um, and then decided to go to graduate school. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the last, our last CD came out while I was in my first semester of graduate school, mm-hmm. and uh, and I went to graduate school at the University of Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, where I started off. I think this is. I don't know. Is this normal? Uh, I started off in mid 19th century American history, mm-hmm. and then. Decided that was not for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, wrote a master's thesis and, and said goodbye to the 19th century, and then moved into mid 20th century foreign policy mm-hmm. uh, and sort of morphed into a foreign policy slash political historian mm-hmm. uh, midway through the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's normal. <laughs> I, I don't think there's anything abnormal about that. I, you know, I'm always, I'm on the, whenever I look at graduate applications, I'm always a little bit. Amazed why people have these very specific projects. I said, I'm going to come to graduate school and I'm going to study footwear in Bulgaria in the early 19th century, specifically in 1806. I'm like, how do you know that's what you're going to study? I mean, you, right. I mean yeah, you, how can you know? I, it's it's almost impossible. But um, but uh, uh, I certainly, yeah, I, I, I started one place and ended up quite a different place. So see, yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's a good thing. I think it should be it should be to use the phrase that you see in like reality TV now. It should be a journey, yeah. um, and <laughs> and you just don't know where where you're going to end up, and no, that's I, okay. It should yeah. be no, you, you 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 learn so much in graduate school, and yeah. you learn what you what you really love and what you find just interesting, and yeah. and so I think you, you, I I agree with you. I'm a little suspicious of folks who have their entire yeah. Research agenda for their life mapped out, yeah. but either way, I ended up uh, I ended up uh, e- e- doing this sort of hybridized uh, study of uh, foreign policy and and uh, and American politics. And my advisor was uh, Nelson Lichtenstein, mm-hmm. uh, who's a very very uh, well known labor historian. And Nelson was fantastic as an advisor. And he really let me study what I wanted to study, which uh, and and write on what I wanted to write on, which I think is something that I've taken forward, as I now you know work with, with some graduate students mm-hmm. and work with advanced undergraduates that you have to let students pursue their passions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Nelson uh, was fully supportive when I came to this uh, idea of working on uh, U.S. policy towards refugees, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, that has that the the project actually originated in in the work that I did in Washington, D.C., in mm-hmm. the foreign policy world, mm-hmm. because when I was working in U.S. African affairs in the mid-'90s, this was just after uh, Rwanda mm-hmm. and the genocide there, mm-hmm. and in fact, it was during uh, the collapse of Zaire. And uh, the two people I worked for at the consulting firm were both former uh, high 
uh, high government officials in mm-hmm. the United States. One worked at uh, the Department of Defense, and the other one worked at the State Department, mm-hmm. and and were had you know decades of experience in African affairs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember, I remember uh, one of them was getting ready to go uh, meet with refugee advocates, mm-hmm. NGOs, and people like that. Uh, during the Zaire crisis, and mm-hmm. what happened when when Zaire collapsed, when uh, when Mobutu's regime collapsed, was that there ended up a, being a massive refugee crisis in eastern Zaire, which mm-hmm. bordered Rwanda, mm-hmm. and the borders are very. Um, uh, uh, very easy to pass over in that mm-hmm. part of the world, mm-hmm. and so you had Rwandans and Zaireans mixing together, and all of them in in, in pretty horrible, dire circumstances. Mm-hmm. And I remember my boss saying to me as he went to the NGO meeting, uh, he said, uh, he said, I don't know what I'm going to tell these people mm-hmm. because the U.S. government's not going to do anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it got me to think, well, yeah. why not? Yeah. And is there a history to this? Mm-hmm. Have we helped in the past? If so, under what conditions? And so that's sort of what sparked the book. Well, it's a terrifically timely topic, um, as I said to you in the pre-interview, especially now that we're trying to wind down the uh, Iraq war. Uh, we will, um, I think we will face similar questions as we, as we uh, try to figure out what to do with uh, the Iraqis um, who have been um, our allies and helpers there, and I, I, um, I pray for wisdom on the part of the people who are going to decide. Uh, but let me let me begin with a, a very elementary question. Um, sure. And, and it is dealt with in the book, but I, I found it kind of interesting because I, I, um, I, I'd never really asked it, and, and that is, well, what exactly is a refugee, a political refugee, and and what are the historical origins of the notion of a political refugee? That's a great question, um, and it's and it's a, it's an interesting concept. I I like to explain it sort of, and and this uh, is is not maybe the technical terms that one would use, but we ought to differentiate between um, refugee and immigrant, mm-hmm. because I think that's an important distinction to draw, and the distinction that I draw is that um, in general. Immigrants choose to leave their country, mm-hmm. and they choose to leave it under different circumstances, and some of those are hardship circumstances, mm-hmm. whereas refugees are forced mm-hmm. or chased out of their mm-hmm. countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I know that's a it, – it's an important distinction. I know it's, it's, it's sometimes the, the two categories will – can be, can be, uh, can be uh, smooshed together, mm-hmm. but – in fact, it's very important. Mm-hmm. And, and what we've seen over the 20th century, really, uh, in American life uh, and American refugee policies, certainly, is, 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 a, is, is the definition of refugee becomes more and more uh, politicized and more and more particular. Mm-hmm. So whereas um, in the early 20th century, you might have refugees from earthquakes, mm-hmm. for instance, or natural disasters, and that's the term that's used a fair amount, uh, as well as refugees from political circumstances, mm-hmm. uh, fleeing political persecution. Mm-hmm. By the 1950s, and then this, I think, really does continue to this day, uh, refugee comes to mean really just that person fleeing political persecution. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is part of the process that I think about in the book. Mm-hmm. Now, th- there's one issue that, that sort of 
confuses uh, or makes it a little more complicated, this story, and that is uh, what do you do with so-called economic refugees, mm -hmm. people fleeing tough economic circumstances. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about that term, and you see it a fair amount in debates in the 60s and the 70s, especially uh, dealing with uh, Haitians mm -hmm. fleeing, uh, fleeing the repressive regime there, uh, the term economic refugee at first was uh, a pejorative used by restrictionists, people who wanted to keep refugees out, because they basically said, listen, the only people who are refugees are people fleeing political persecution. If you're fleeing economic circumstances, that doesn't make you a refugee. Mm -hmm. That makes you basically a traditional immigrant. Mm -hmm. And so this is a distinction that's also drawn as uh, is an economic refugee and a political refugee. Mm -hmm. And in general, U.S. policy has really favored mm -hmm. the political refugees. Mm -hmm. did, did any country in the 19th century have a refugee policy? And the reason I ask this is, uh, you know, from my own experience of studying Russian history, I know that the, 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 the Bolsheviks and, and people in other radical parties um, were basically driven out of, of Russia in the 19th century. And... Um, Lenin famously spent a lot of his life in Geneva, but I don't think that uh, you know the Swiss had any, or the French in some cases had any refugee policy. They just went. No, yeah, it's not. It, it's interesting. There's two things I think going on there when we think about the, the the 19th century and maybe even before. And one, and this is certainly the case in the United States, is that the United States uh, really couldn't control its own borders didn't try to control mm -hmm. its own borders to any great degree mm -hmm. until the 1870s and 1880s. Mm -hmm. um, and so, therefore, there's an idea of refugees out there, people fleeing political persecution. But the U.S. government, for instance, has no apparatus. It doesn't have a, a, an immigration apparatus or bureaucracy mm -hmm. that's designed to try and try and say, okay, you can come in and you cannot mm -hmm. uh, for these various reasons. Mm -hmm. And so while we have, certainly we have French, uh, French uh, refugees fleeing the revolution in the mm -hmm. 1790s, I mean, we would recognize them as refugees. Mm -hmm. We have um, re uh, refugees from Europe mm -hmm. fleeing in the, uh, in the revolutions of the 1840s. 1840s, yeah. Right, right um, yeah. and some of them come to the United States, yep. um, and we would recognize them as refugees. There's no real policy, uh, U.S. government policy towards them. Mm -hmm. And I think internationally, you have a similar dynamic, and this was the second point I wanted to make, which is that internationally, this idea of a refugee and sort of legally encode it mm -hmm. uh, in international statutes and in and in the way that that. Uh, foreign policy people, experts and politicians and lawyers talk about refugees as a category mm -hmm. doesn't really come into being until the early part of the 20th century. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and that's a process that I think is, is uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an event that occurs along with the process of, 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 of the destruction of empires mm -hmm. in Europe. And the uh, and the solidification of these new nation states, mm -hmm. in which thinking about citizenship and who belongs, really mm -hmm. takes on a a, a, a 
a big, big, big part of the political culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, so let's actually go to just that question. And, uh, you know, from my uh, very superficial knowledge of um, the history of American immigration, there was this thing called the open door policy, uh, which may be myth or not. I don't know. Uh, and then that door was closed. And at that point, we do get a refugee policy. So maybe you can take us from the beginning of the open door co- policy th- through its conclusion. Right, right, right. No, and this is one of the things that uh, the book tries to do is to think about what's the relationship between immigration policy and refugee policy. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, I'll rely on my musical past, I guess, um, uh, in, in explaining it. I, I sort of view immigration policy as kind of the backbeat mm-hmm. uh, of the story. Mm-hmm. It's always there and it's always important because it sort of sets the parameters of what mm-hmm. the other, <laughs> what the refugee policy mm-hmm. is going to be. But it's not necessarily determinative of mm-hmm. of what refugee policy might be. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Immigration uh, relatively to the United States is through an open door, um, uh, uh, at least until the late 19th century. And we start to see a whole host of laws, and, and I'm sure all of our listeners are familiar with the, with the Chinese Exclusion Act and things like that in the late 19th century that begin to shut the open door to immigrants just a little bit. And that process accelerates um, in the 1910s and 1920s uh, in the wake of really the mass immigration uh, from Europe um, at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, when, mm-hmm. you know, literally we were seeing, uh, or Americans were seeing uh, uh, between 1905 and 1914, uh, on average, one million immigrants entered mm-hmm. each year, mm-hmm. each year, which is a really large mm-hmm. number, especially relative to the population. Mm-hmm. And so this spurs a, a, a crisis, a sense of crisis, and restrictionists, those anti-immigrant activists and politicians, push through a whole set of laws in the in the 1910s and 1920s called the we, we historians give them the the, the name uh, the National Origins Quota Laws that essentially shut the open door in two ways. They shut the open door by one severely, severely limiting the total number of immigrants who could come in, uh, and then also saying of those who could come in, we're going to favor uh, Europeans from uh, from uh, from England and from uh, North uh, Western Europe in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so this is this system is in effect until 1965, the national mm-hmm. origin system. Mm-hmm. And you're right. What's Interesting is during this period of of um, of the open door being being closed, uh, we do get a American refugee policy, an mm-hmm. American commitment to refugees. Mm-hmm. And and what, what what are its origins? Do they have to do with um, the? Um, I of course know the answer to these questions because I've read the book. But uh, <laughs> uh, do they have to do with the uh, rise of the Nazis and the um, the 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 the, the, the flight of um, those they oppressed? Well, in part, in part, it, it does have to do with that um, because. Uh, but what's interesting to me is that is that really in the 1930s, and this is sort of the the starting point for the book. And whenever I whenever I get folks who ask me who aren't historians, well, what's the book about? I sort of say to them, well, you know, we all know the story in the 1930s about mm-hmm. how the United States shut its door to refugees from mm-hmm. Europe. I mean, mm-hmm. We're all familiar with that with that story. And the peculiar thing is that in the in the, I guess, six decades after that, the United States lets in four million refugees. Mm-hmm. So the question is, what changes? What happens? And so I really, uh, I really think that um, 
one of the things that was interesting to me, actually, Marshall, in doing the project was I sort of figured that uh, the Holocaust and the experience of the 1930s would cast this uh, would cast this long shadow mm-hmm. over American refugee policies. Mm-hmm. And I'm I was actually really surprised uh, to by the degree to which that shadow was a lot. Sh- a lot smaller, a lot mm-hmm. shorter than mm-hmm. than I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I think what happens, uh, and this is what I what I write about in the book, is that uh, in the 1940s, uh, in the 1950s, spurred on especially by the Cold War, uh, but also by changes at home, and these are political changes and cultural changes. Uh, you see the development uh, very piecemeal of efforts to help uh, refugees, uh, especially in Europe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like one, one of the things actually I, I found interesting is I was wondering about this because um, I know some Armenian people, and I always wondered how they got to the United States. And, and actually your book told me, and that is that uh, in the, after the Armenian genocide, there was, a, um, there, was a, there was a great influx or attempted influx of Armenians to the United States. And that, right. that itself caused a kind of crisis. Yes, it did. It did. It did. I mean, this is one of the first times uh, in the 20s that the uh, 10s and 20s that the U.S. government starts to you see you see attempts, legislative attempts to try to bring in mm-hmm. uh, bring in refugees and specifically Armenians. I mm-hmm. mean, this is the this is what this is actually the, the one of the first definitions that mm-hmm. we can find of the term refugee mm-hmm. is actually in reference to the Armenian crisis. In fact, in fact, it's, I was, I'm sorry to interrupt. But if I recall from the book correctly, it's been a number of days since I read it. But the 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 the, def, the original American legal definition of refugee meant Armenian. Yes, I mean, was, <laughs> there was no there was no expansive definition yeah. of refugee that said, okay, and we're going to apply this to Armenians. It was literally these are Armenian refugees we want to bring in, mm-hmm. and in the future that definition was sort of played with and adjusted to become something a little. Uh, more universal, mm-hmm. or in some cases, actually not universal at all. They would cross out, for instance, the word Armenian and write in the word Russian. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So it's it's a it's a situation where we went from uh, where the U.S. government went from sort of very particular circumstances of a certain refugee crisis and used that to try to to try to fashion a more universal definition later on mm-hmm. uh, and that is in the that is in the, the the 1940s and 50s when you really do see and this is the first time you really do see uh, the development of uh, in more conceptual terms this definition of a refugee mm-hmm. and here it's it's clear that it's based on political persecution mm-hmm. and the limiting factor uh, oftentimes is is that you have to be, if you're a refugee, you have to be fleeing from a certain part of the world. And mm-hmm. that certain part of the world was in the 1940s and 1950s, Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. Yeah, before we get to that, why exactly were the um, – well, there are a couple of questions I had, and one that really piqued my interest was that uh, um, the quota on Germans in the 1930s often wasn't met, and it wasn't even nearly met. That is, right. they, we said that we were going to take 100, and we took 10. Now, is that because of administrative foot-dragging or because of lack of, lack of applicants, or why exactly was that? 
It was, and and a bunch of historians, uh, most notably David Wyman, has have have written on this story. But I think it's I, it's largely attributed to, and I think uh, you know historians have been been very good on this. It's largely attributed to administrative foot dragging mm-hmm. um, that you see uh, in the in the. You're exactly right. In the 1930s, the U.S. government does have quotas for uh, for Germans and Austrians, uh, and and those. Those quotas are, you know, sometimes only five percent. Yeah, still. yeah. I was amazed to see that in the book. I was really surprised by that. Yeah, and it's and it's clearly uh, it's it's sort of administrative foot dragging, but on two levels. Uh, on the one case, you've got uh, sort of the high-level policymakers in Washington D.C., people sort of in the upper echelons of the State Department, who are uh, who have some have some uh, anti-Semitic leanings uh-huh. to say to say the least, and they don't want to see Jews brought to the United States, uh-huh. um, and so they're put it, trying to put a clamp down on admissions. And then at the same time, it's interesting uh, the the folks who are actually on the ground. In uh, in the consulates in Europe, are being ordered uh, to to pursue these cases very judiciously mm-hmm. and very vigorously. Mm-hmm. And and uh, for instance, that meant there was something called the likely to become a public charge yeah. clause, the mm-hmm. LPC clause, mm-hmm. and it was instituted by Hoover, and FDR kept it kept it on, kept it on the books. And basically what it said is, if you're going to immigrate to the United States, if you're going to be one of these people who gets one of these prized visas, uh, takes up a quota slot, then you have to prove that you are not going to become, you are not likely to become a public charge mm-hmm. in the United States, i.e. end up on welfare. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this had involved submitting all sorts of paperwork and, and literally letters of, of almost like letters of recommendation yeah. from people in the United States who would, who would vouch that you won't become mm-hmm. a public charge. And this is, I mean, you can just imagine, first of all, if you're, if you're a refugee or a potential refugee, you're, you're thinking about uprooting your entire family mm-hmm. and, and leaving behind your your home country and and just how traumatic that is mm-hmm. and then on top of that you know you've got to you've got to get all this paperwork in line <laughs> and 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 get it all organized with people in the in the in the United States and this is why i think in many ways you know david wyman's book classic book on this subject uh is p- perfectly titled he calls it paper walls mm, i see okay and, yeah. and that's what people had to surmount and those paper walls are are mm-hmm. pretty formidable mm-hmm. i see so let's move on past the 1930s and and actually uh into the final years of the second world war where we um encounter the the displaced person crisis. I think this is a much undertold story in general. I know a few people are working on it, but millions of Europeans without homes, many of whom want to come to the United States. And it's really at this moment, isn't it, that uh, legislature, legislators uh, begin to seriously think about a, a new um, refugee policy, isn't it? That is the, that is the case. Yes, um, the the sort of crisis uh, that unfolds in in Europe after the war uh, is is immense, and it's a story that's well told. But it's something that you know I think we tend to forget just how wrecked mm-hmm. uh, that world was, that part of the world was, and um, and you've got you know anywhere between 
8 and 11 million displaced persons all across Europe, many of them residing in camps run by the United States uh, military or mm-hmm. by the, you know, also by the British and the French. Um, but uh, the question is then, what do you do? What mm-hmm. do you do with these folks? Many of them are, are resettled uh, in Europe or repatriated, uh, and some of them uh, forcibly so back behind behind uh, what, you know, is emerging as the Iron Curtain. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but that still leaves, you know, several million in camps. And and what we see in the United States is that um, is that is that there's a there's a there's a real effort made to to open up the doors to the United States to bring them in. And I think that effort involves two things. One, uh, one is sort of foreign policy thinking. And, and here uh, it's actually quite interesting because what I find uh, most striking about the DP uh, crisis, and that's what we call that, mm-hmm. that sort of post-war refugee crisis, the DP crisis. What I find most striking there, foreign policy-wise, is that as much as the foreign policy reasons for admitting these refugees are based in the Cold War, and they are that emer- the emerging Cold War, they are at least in part based in, in thinking about countering the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. they're very much so uh, based in thinking about this problem as, as a leftover problem from World War II. Mm-hmm. So it's as much backward-looking as forward-looking. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's really important to remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then domestically, what you see is you see a president, Truman, who, um, who is being pressured by any number of of his constituents uh, to to deal with this problem. And you see ethnic organizations and religious organizations who really do make up, you know, a, a good portion of the New Deal coalition that, mm-hmm. that Truman is trying to, to hold together. Uh, and they're pushing him to admit to admit uh, these displaced persons. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think, you know, this combines with a general in the United States by the by the 1940s you know, a sense of, um, of, 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 of pride in, in cultural diversity, what, you know, pluralism writ large, right? Mm-hmm. You get that in the 1940s and 1950s, and these folks are making this sort of pluralistic argument to Truman that this is what makes America strong and, and we should bring them in. And mm-hmm. Truman, obviously, Truman actually does believe that, but he also believes <laughs> he's, a, he's a good politician and he knows I, I, if I keep these constituents happy, this is, this is, this is good for me in the long run. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's what brings, that's what brings them in. Uh, it brings the DPs in, in the, in the 1940s. About, about how many came? Uh, around 400,000. I see. Okay. And upcoming. Yeah. So it's, it's not a very large number really um, compared to late 19th century. Uh, yes. Immigration no, not at all. Yeah, yeah. Not at all. But but when you compare it with what the uh, what the immigration quota numbers are uh-huh. in the nineteen late nineteen forties, early nineteen fifties, you know your your annual quotas, you know from 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 Europe and from that part of the world is probably around one hundred fifty thousand. So, so it's it's a it's a pretty big number I in see. comparison. I see. So once we had worked our way through the DPS, um, what became of American refugee policy? Well, that's what's uh, that's what's interesting uh, to me, at least, is because, and I make this argument in the book, that uh, that the first Cold War refugee policy uh, really begins in in 1953 with something called the Refugee Relief. 
program. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I make that argument because I really do see the DP, the DP program of the 1940s as a transitional program mm-hmm. that moves us from World War II into the Cold War. It's got mm-hmm. elements of both. Whereas the refugee relief program, there's no question. <laughs> it is targeted at... Uh, at refugees from communism. Mm -hmm. And it's really, uh, it's a fascinating uh, episode, I think, uh, because it's forged in in really the cauldron of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Um, Eisenhower has taken over from Truman. Uh, He is told by his experts in uh, the State Department that one way to help stabilize Europe politically and economically is to relieve some of these population pressures. And one of the ways to do that is to admit refugees. It has the added bonus, of course, of being sort of a stick in the eye of the Soviet Union, you know, a graphic representation of America as this uh, as this uh, beacon of liberty and freedom and the Soviet Union as this oppressive uh, communist uh, monolith that crushes individuals. And so it has that type of advantage as well. And so Eisenhower pushes through this law called the Refugee Relief Act, and it it basically provides for the admission of about 200,000 refugees over three years. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, and the entire debate, I mean, it's a fascinating debate to read in the the congressional record and in the the newspapers, too. The entire debate is colored by the Cold War Mm -hmm. and how this will affect American relations with the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's just as interesting is it's colored by the domestic Cold War as well. Mm-hmm. These fears of communism that, you know, when we think about this era of McCarthyism, that's what I'm referring to. Uh, and obviously it's not just McCarthy, but it's this era of the Red Scare. And, um, and you see that color refugee politics and policymaking as they're designing this law, these concerns about infiltration and subversion. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the Refugee Relief Act builds in these amazing set of, uh, set of, 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 of benchmarks, of, 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 of paperwork, of, of paper walls in some mm-hmm. ways, mm-hmm. Uh, that, that really set the bar pretty high mm-hmm. for folks who might be applying to come in under the under this law mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so what's what's interesting to me is uh, is and this sort of gets to something that I that I deal with throughout the book I sort of assumed when I started this project and I sort of assumed like much of the literature did that once a law is passed mm-hmm. You know, once the president and Congress agree and they say, okay, let's bring in this number of refugees, then all of a sudden, you know, this number of refugees would actually be admitted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I – and this is partially a lesson that I learned from the folks who study the 1930s. Uh, what, I, what I learned was that, in fact, that's not the case. It doesn't just happen. Mm-hmm. You've got to – get these refugees through the admissions process. They've mm-hmm. got to get themselves through it. And that in many cases, the admissions process is where um, these battles are again fought about whether or not the U.S. should be admitting refugees. Mm-hmm. And so I, you see this particularly in the case of the refugee relief uh, program, because over the first 18 months of the program, they let in, I mean, literally like, they let in like maybe a thousand people. Mm-hmm. And the thing is only going to run for three years. Mm-hmm. So if you do the math, they're not going to actually admit 
you know, 200,000 people over three years. They're going to admit, if they keep up at that pace, about 2,000 people mm-hmm. over three nice. years, um, which is amazing when you think about it. It's a, it's a, it's a totally obstructionist mm-hmm. program at its beginning. And so I, I look at how and why that happened. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and what I find is that it's really it's, – it's, it, the program is set up almost to fail. Mm-hmm. It's run by this fellow by the name of Scott McLeod, who is a uh, – who is a true believer in the anti-communist cause, Mm -hmm. good friends with McCarthy, good friends with uh, Senators uh, Pat McCarran and Stiles Bridges. And these, those two are sort of infamous in their anti-communism and, and McLeod runs this program and staffs it um, with the intent of screening out and preventing entry of anybody who might be a threat, mm-hmm. who might be seen as uh, subversive. Mm-hmm. And, and he does this quite effectively mm-hmm. to the point where literally nobody is getting in, mm-hmm. which the Eisenhower administration says, this is not good. Yeah. <laughs> we, we can't have this. This is a political problem. Yeah. And again, this gets back to this idea of domestic politics uh, influencing uh, American refugee policies because, you know, Eisenhower in 52 uh, runs for the presidency on this idea of or one of his ideas is is this rollback. Uh, or at least a much more aggressive posture towards the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, he's trying to court Eastern European uh, voters in the United States. And one of the ways you can do that is by letting their their uh, their brethren, sometimes their relatives, into the country through yeah. this refugee program. Mm-hmm. And what he's finding is, I mean, he does he does make inroads in into into these ethnic groups uh, in the '52 election, and these are groups that had previously voted Democratic, and so he's feeling pretty good about that. And then along comes this refugee program, which it gets passed, and that's another feather in his cap for those types of voters. Uh, And then he finds that nobody's actually getting in, which Mm -hmm. gets those ethnic groups angry. And so he and uh, Dulles make the executive decision to remove or uh, rather uh, demote in some ways uh, Mr. McLeod. Um, and, And it's amazing, over the last 18 months of the program, uh, refugees pour into the country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It seems to me that um, one of the things that comes out in your book uh, is that uh, to, to, a, to a significant degree, um, both American refugee policy and um, our political administrative will to um, allow refugees uh, into the United States uh, is driven by events. And a good example is um, uh, Hungary in 56, uh, where, uh, you know, I, I don't know if, the, I mean, I suppose a, a Hungarian-American would tell me about the, uh, the long-running friendship of the United States and Hungary, but uh, I, I don't know anything about it. Right. <laughs> and, uh, but all of a sudden we, we become very interested in Hungary. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think this is a, I mean, it's a, it's a great observation because you're right in the largest sense, and this is something that the book tracks, is that, is that crises drive American refugee policies until 1980. Uh-huh. And so Hungary is a perfect example, but I would add on to that Hungary, Cuba, with the fall of the Batista government in, yeah, in right. 1959, mm-hmm. and then, of course, the problems in, uh, in Indochina mm-hmm. in the 1970s. These mm-hmm. are all huge crises, and uh, they are dealt with 
these refugee crises are dealt with in a in a piecemeal fashion. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so so events in 1956 where in Hungary you have the Soviet Union crushing the crushing the the rebellion, um, the revolution, you know, sending Hungarians fleeing into Austria, be, potentially destabilizing Austria. And at the same time, the U.S. really not doing anything. Eisenhower, again, had promised that rollback, and Americans surely remembered the rhetoric mm -hmm. uh, and were wondering, well, what's he going to do? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, he decides uh, to take a prudent course, obviously, and not not intervene in the revolution. But, uh, you know, you, you can't just sit and do nothing. And again, refugee admissions in this case – play a, uh, a symbolic role, uh, and, and symbolism is important in, in, in international politics, uh, both at home and abroad, and so it's that, that sort of crisis and that moment of almost a futility <laughs> on the part of the United States that drives refugee admissions in, 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 in the Hungarian case, and, mm -hmm. and over 40,000 Hungarians are admitted mm -hmm. uh, in the space of six or seven months, and yeah. again, this, if you compare it Again, and this is part of the part of the story I tell is, wow! In that first 18 months of the refugee relief program, nobody was getting in. Yeah. The barriers were immense, mm -hmm. and then Hungary comes along, and and the barriers are considerably lower. Mm -hmm. And again, driven by events, mm -hmm. I think the last thing the Eisenhower administration would want to see is these huge camps open up in Austria, and and sort of that becomes the living symbol of. Uh, you know, the United States not helping these people, mm -hmm. that's a big problem, too. Mm -hmm. So he really, you really see these folks get into the country quite easily. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't want to be, um, it's kind of interesting if you compare just the three examples that you mentioned, that is uh, the Hungarian case, the Cuban case, and the case of the Vietnamese or Indochinese, um, because I, I started thinking that, um, uh, you know, that the doors are open to these people when the issue enters um, a kind of consequential phase in American politics. In other words, where somebody very important like the president feels that he could be damaged politically. But I don't know, in the Hungarian case, I, I, I suppose maybe he could have been damaged politically. In, in the Cuban case, more likely. Um, in the Vietnamese case, I don't think at all, because uh, Americans were tired of Vietnam. Um, but yet we, we went through with it. So you have this kind of interesting, how would you, I, I know that global uh, Judgments of this sort are extraordinarily difficult, but but how would you uh, how would you assess the balance between sort of political practicality and American idealism in the formation of these policies in these three cases? Right. I mean, that, that's a it, it's a great point. I, I think that in all of these cases, practicality and idealism are are in play, um, and I do think though the differences they're all functioning in slightly different or sometimes very different political cultures and political moments at, at home. Um, and here I would say the, the interesting thing to me is, and I think you're absolutely right, and it's something I, I do talk about in the book a little bit, is that, is that you know, by the 1970s, take the Indo-Chinese case. In the 1970s, you're absolutely right. Americans want, uh, I think, first and foremost to wash their hands of what had happened in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. And a, a commitment to refugees and refugee admissions is one way that they, is one way that they can't do that. It, it mm -hmm. keeps them involved. Um, and so you would think on the face of it that there's this, uh, that there's a reason, you know, it's surprising at one level that, that, 
these Indo-Chinese refugees are admitted. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, uh, and this is this is I think what's what's determinative in this case in the 70s is that this is the political culture in the United States has changed immensely from the 1950s, and and, and in this way. Uh, Human rights. Yeah, no, I was going to mention that too. Human rights is is vital to uh, to to sort of an American, I think, sense of self. And if it's not human rights, it's at least a rights consciousness, mm-hmm. and that's the phrase that us historians use uh, to describe what happens in the 1960s. And so, uh, you know, the arguments that are made to admit these these refugees in in the 1970s, and you see this especially on the liberal side of the spectrum, but you increasingly see it on the conservative side too, mm-hmm. is is the argument that listen. These folks, regardless of their of their value as you know maybe pawns in the geopolitical game that the United States is playing with the Soviet Union and others, uh, that the, the, the important thing here is that is that we ought to protect and help these folks because this is a way of sustaining uh, a commitment, a respect for human rights, mm-hmm. and that's something you get in the 1970s that you just don't get in mm-hmm. the 1950s, and that. I mean, that's an argument that actually sells, that has traction because of what happened, I think, in the United States in the 1960s with with the civil rights movement, Mm -hmm. with the women's rights movement, Mm -hmm. with this flowering of rights consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so so in this case, you know, again, and I would point out that all of this is it's idealistic. There are American so-called ideals at play. But on the other hand, um, this is all, you know, it's practical politics. It's responding mm-hmm. to to uh, to how uh, the American polity thinks about itself and the and the rhetoric and the language and the and the ideas it uses and 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 that's a very real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not. I guess I, I would say it's it's that mix of ideals and, and practicality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I, I do find it very interesting, and I think you're exactly right about the rights talk. I mean, you, you couldn't ever get elected on a, a human rights platform and not be. Well, you just couldn't get elected uh, uh, at all before the, the 1970s. Um, and if you started to talk about universal human rights, you'd probably be called a communist. Um, you were because, called a communist. Yeah, because yeah. They, they, they they talked about universal human rights all the time. But and and it was kind of cleaned up in the 1960s and then became sellable in the 1970s. And you have someone like Carter who talks a lot about it and, and appears to be a very pious believer in these things. And, and of course, he's going to accept the boat people um, who, as I told you in the pre-interview, uh, showed up in my high school. Uh, and m- much to our, our uh, confusion, we had no idea where they came from. Um, but, right. but they just showed up. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it does make, make, make sense in, in, that, in that context. And also, I mean, you have to put it in the broader international context of the Helsinki Agreement on Human Rights and, and our bashing the Soviets for violating human rights. And this becomes kind of an international cudgel that we, we wield. And it's, it's difficult for us to... Um, you know, it's difficult for us to, to, on the one hand, claim that the Soviets aren't uh, doing us any good here um, because they don't, um, or doing anyone any good because they don't, uh, they, they don't, they don't observe human rights. And then on the other hand, we don't allow refugees into the United States. So, um, so in order to be consistent, we really kind of needed to do it. Right, uh, right, and yeah. that's true. I mean, you think about, I mean, and this is something that that comes out in the book, and it's actually going to come out in my next project, I think, a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But is the is this is the fact that uh, you know some of the 
some of the greatest supporters of human rights in the 1970s come from the right, come from the American political right. Mm -hmm. uh, people like you know Henry Scoop Jackson, the yeah. senator from Washington, yeah. who is who is you know a very conservative Democrat. Mm -hmm. He's a cold warrior through and through, mm -hmm. and he speaks very eloquently about human rights. Mm -hmm. uh, but but the reason he speaks eloquently about human rights is because he, he literally sees it, as, as you put it, as a cudgel to bash the Soviet right. Union. And, and this is different than somebody like uh, Senator Kennedy, Senator Ted Kennedy, who sort of expl just explicitly says, listen, human rights are important because they're a path away from the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this is a very different. They both support the admission of, for instance, Soviet Jews. Mm -hmm. uh, they both believe in human rights very deeply, but they both believe in slightly uh, and sometimes not so slightly different definitions of human rights. And they believe uh, that they should be applied differently and to different ends. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very, uh, in the 1970s, I mean, it's, in the end, it's actually very good for refugee admissions. Mm -hmm. Because it's such a flexible language that it allows it allows an expansion in many ways of 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 the admission of refugees to the United States. Mm -hmm. It's a dangerous tool, though. I mean, I know that in the case of the Soviet Jews, um, you know, the Soviets quickly realized that um, our degree of investment in getting them out. Uh, could be used against us, and they began to hold them hostage, basically, um, and say, well, you know, we'll let them out if you do what we want. Uh, and, of course, that's not the way they would put it, but that's, in fact, the real political thing that they were doing. Yes, yes. No, I mean, I think it's a language, and uh, and we've seen this now in some of the latest scholarship on, on, on human rights, that it's a language that all sides are employing. Yeah. And because they're all employing it, then it, it becomes I'm sh it becomes just as much a a, a, a cudgel for the Soviet Union yeah, to no, bash really the American. I mean, yeah. you see it with the, with the with the Soviet reaction to the civil rights movement mm -hmm. and and segregation in the United mm -hmm. States, and they and they call out the United States on this. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's a it is a two way street, and that's what makes it a makes it an interesting uh, an interesting language and mm -hmm. tool. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about. Um, uh, the Reagan administration and refugee policy, because there's a kind of a, a change there. Why don't you yes, speak a little bit yes. about that? Yeah. Yeah. No. It's 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 in, it's a it's an intriguing moment because Reagan comes into office, and uh, in some ways, I think it's uh, similar to what you see happen with his foreign policy more generally, which is a return to this muscular, uh, militaristic, uh, anti-communist anti-Soviet foreign policy mm -hmm. that is reminiscent much more of the early years of the Cold War uh, than it is of the uh, 1970s of Nixon and Ford and mm -hmm. Carter and detente. And, um, and, and, and so what Reagan does and his advisors do is they kind of roll back the clock a little bit in terms of refugee policy because what happens in the 1980s, and this is the culmination uh, of this sort of human rights moment, what happens in the 1980s is that for the first time the United States passes a law that says uh, and there had been it's not the first time there were minor laws that admitted sort of very small numbers of refugees several thousand for instance in the 1960s on an annual basis but 1980 there's a big law passed called the Refugee Act and what it does is it essentially says 
the United States is going to admit about 100,000 refugees annually. Mm-hmm. And we'll divide that up. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll bargain uh, between Congress and the, and the White House. They'll bargain about where, who's going to get those slots. Mm-hmm. But it's on the books. We're going to get 100,000 refugees in. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, what's interesting is the definition of refugee in the 1980 law uh, is uh, has any of those sort of anti-Soviet, anti-communist leanings and literally, uh, literally uh, geographic de- designations, those are all taken out. Mm-hmm. So we get a, a universal, a truly universal definition of refugee in mm-hmm. 1980, right? Mm-hmm. So for, for advocates of refugee admissions, this is a great moment. They're saying, wow, we've, we've achieved so much, especially when you think about where they were 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And then Reagan comes into office, and he really decides to turn – back the clock, and he does so by saying, well, we're going to admit these refugees, but I'm going to make the strong case that we ought to admit first and foremost, and almost, uh, you know, in some ways exclusively, uh, refugees fleeing from the Soviet Union Mm -hmm. and from communism. Mm -hmm. And so what he's able to do in some ways is, and you see this throughout the 1980s, is return to a very Cold War-centered refugee policy, Mm -hmm. which, of course, as those of us who grew up during this time period uh, remember, I think, uh, is very politically controversial. Mm-hmm. And nowhere is this more apparent than in uh, Central America, yeah. right, where you have uh, folks uh, fleeing uh, regimes of the left and the right. Uh, um, uh, and, and Reagan is very uh, – the Reagan administration is opens the door much more to those who are fleeing regimes in the right from the right mm-hmm. rather than those from uh, from uh, or rather I'm sorry <laughs> reverse that yeah yeah regimes much more happy to to uh, admit refugees fleeing from communist or socialist mm-hmm. regimes uh, and shutting the door to others and this of course enrages the left mm-hmm. and refugee politics becomes a way again politically it's something that that liberals and democrats can bash the right with mm-hmm. and uh, and this is an important important uh, political uh, tool in the 1980s so again we see this sort of domestic environment uh, really shaping uh, the commitment to refugees mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so uh, where do we stand today in terms of refugee policy what is our policy <laughs> what is it? Uh, what is our policy? It's a good question. I don't know. I, I think, yeah, I think we're still. Tr- I think uh, President Obama might still be trying to figure that one out. Um, I think, you know, I mean, what's interesting is, of course, this 1980 law that I just talked about is still on the books. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but what we see after 9/11 was basically the borders were shut, um, and for three or four years after 9/11, that. Uh, 100,000 quota was maybe, you know, 25 to 50 percent, to 60% filled. Um, and it started creeping back up uh, very slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, you know, the question moving forward that's sort of on everybody's mind, and you mentioned it earlier, is, is what's going to happen in, in Iraq mm-hmm. and what's going to happen with, with those folks over there. Mm-hmm. And I think the, for me at least, and, and obviously history is no, predictor of future events, but it does suggest some parallels. And to me, the, the, the parallel here is, is uh, with Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in this way, the, the, 
missions from from Vietnam, the refugee missions from Vietnam, began in 1975. Now, of course, uh, there were refugee problems uh, and refugee crises in Southeast Asia before that, uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. And it, it really took the resolution of the geopolitical and political situation in Vietnam in 1975, right, the end of South Vietnam, to force the United States into action. And so, uh, and the reason why they, the U.S. didn't launch any major efforts in the uh, early 1970s or before, before the fall of South Vietnam is quite simply because if they did so, it would look like they were ready to pull out, abandon, <laughs> abandon all hope right. for uh, a stable uh, and, and sovereign South Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And it would be seen as an admission of defeat, mm -hmm. right? Why go on any longer? And mm -hmm. I do think that dynamic is kind of in play yeah. in, in the Iraq situation where nobody's quite sure what is going to come next. Nobody's sure how this is quite going to shake out. I think things have actually gotten a little more confusing over the last year or two uh, in terms of the political and the, and the sort of regional situation. Mm -hmm. And so any administration that, that, that is considering a large-scale large uh, effort to help Iraqi refugees is going to have to weigh that against these other considerations. Mm -hmm. And I think that is going to lend itself to caution, mm -hmm. and 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 they're going to wait and see how things how things work out. Now, obviously, this is this is really not not good for folks who are in dire situations. Mm -hmm. And you know, you you've got at one point at least, as I as I remember the figures, around 10% of the Iraqi population mm -hmm. had had been displaced, mm -hmm. uh, which is an incredibly large number. Mm -hmm. And uh and then you've got these these particular situations and George Packer uh from the New Yorker has written very movingly about these, you know, about the uh, Iraqi translators mm -hmm. uh who were allied uh, or aligned with and worked with the uh, American troops mm -hmm. and would go out and, and then uh, would find themselves obviously endangered. And, and then the United States basically said, you know, they, they, the Iraqi uh, translators would come to the U.S. and come to the U.S. officials and say, listen, I'm in trouble. My family's in trouble. Can you help us out? And nothing. Mm -hmm. And they would get no help at all mm -hmm. uh, and would not be admitted to the United States. And this is a horrible, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, these are horrible stories. Mm -hmm. um, and I think those are things, th those are the particular situations. And, and I think actually what's, what I think might happen is that, is that those particular stories, as they become a little more well-known, uh, a little more, you know, part of the part of the larger uh, public consciousness, those are the types of stories that are going to end up animating mm -hmm. and, and pushing forward whatever large-scale refugee program emerges from the uh, Iraq uh, scenario. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you completely, and um, I hope that we do the right thing. I was kind of going through my mind and thinking about people that I knew who were honest-to-God refugees, and it turns out I know someone from literally every um, every 
every, every period in American refugee policy. I, I, I actually interviewed Sam Kassov. He was a DP. He was born in a DP camp. Uh, that was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I know at least one Hungarian refugee from 56. I think we all know Cubans um, yeah. who've been yeah. here. Uh, I know Koreans well who came after the war. I know my, you know, one of my best friends in high school is married to a Vietnamese woman who came um, in the early 70s. Uh, I know innumerable Soviet Jews. So, I right. have, yeah, I know Iranians. I know some Iranians. Actually, I just got an email from one of them the other day. And, and so I have no doubt that we will have uh, new Iraqi Americans. And, I, again, I really, I really hope that we, we do the right thing vis-a-vis those people because – Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean – I just think it's I would, an important thing, yeah. Yeah, I would say that it's it's an important thing, and I, and I think it's an important thing in, in two ways. I mean, I think there's a way in which, and maybe this is part of something the Obama administration is thinking about, but it is a way to sort of tell the world that, that this is this is something different that we're doing and mm-hmm. and, and and this is a break from the past mm-hmm. and that in that sense it actually helps helps forward i would hope sort of a set of interests mm-hmm. right i mean you can always you, there's this great debate about foreign policy and about whether it reflects interests or ideals mm-hmm. and it's a false debate because mm-hmm. foreign policy represents both mm-hmm. uh you know and so but in this case with refugees you can really make a case that okay it's going to help america's national security interests by creating hopefully a more stable Iraq and a more stable region. And it shows a good faith attempt, hopefully, uh, by the United States to sort of embark upon new policies. And then at the same time, the ideals are very important and they're ones mm-hmm. that, you know, we should, I think, that are worth fighting for. Yeah. An open country, um, a, 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 a compassionate country, mm-hmm. a country that that values diversity, mm-hmm. um, and those are controversial things. Uh, certainly, the diversity point is, mm-hmm. but uh, nonetheless, if you're in the Obama administration, you can make a compelling case that that this type of effort to help these folks really does uh, does forward America's interests and its ideals at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's, uh, for me, that's what, that's what sort of cinches the, cinches the case, uh, at least as I think about it. Well, from your lips to Brock's ears. That's what <laughs> I say. Yeah. So anyway, we've taken up a lot of your time and I wanted to end the interview with our traditional question, which is, um, what are you working on now? What's your next project? Well, the next project is is uh, is a is going to be a book on uh, human rights politics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that obviously I deal with in the in the in the in the in the, in the refugee book, and it's going to look at uh, literally what happened uh, to uh, human rights politics and policies after the human rights moment of the 1970s. This mm-hmm. sort of flourishing of human rights talk in the mm-hmm. 70s. And in particular, it's going to look both at, and this is where I suppose I'm doing something that's different than what others have done. It's going to look uh, not just at foreign policy decisions, um, but particularly at the ways in which domestic political actors, and here I'm thinking of civil rights activists and labor activists and women's rights activists and gay rights activists, and then folks on the right, like Christian evangelicals, mm-hmm. sort of embrace or and use this language of human rights and mm-hmm. this idea of human rights to forward their domestic mm-hmm. agendas. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really thinking, again, uh, I guess we all, we all uh, sort of copy ourselves as the first book was about uh, how the international and the domestic and the interplay 
between them. Uh, the second book is going to have some of those same themes, but also but thinking about human rights in a in a in a in a in a sort of comprehensive way since the 1970s. Well, it's a terrific project, and I hope you come on the show when you're done with it. I would be happy to. And that'll be in about a month then? Is that what you're... Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's one of the things my parents are, uh, my parents are always asking me, when's the book going to be done? When's the book going to be done? And they, they finally understand that it takes, you know, seven or eight years or however long it takes. It takes a while. It takes a while. So it might be a little while, but I'd be happy to come back on the show. Well, Carl, thanks for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. Take care now. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Carl Bontempo about his new book, Americans at the Gate, United States and Refugees During the Cold War. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and I hope you have a great week.